Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you continue to be a faithful God year in and year out. It does not matter what, uh, what's happening on the calendar. You are always the same. You never change. We know that you are for us, not against us. You know that you love us. We know that um, you have done everything uh, to make us your people, and we're thankful, Father, for that. As we gather this morning, we long to learn more about you and what you are doing for us in Jesus Christ, and so we pray that you would help us to be able to read your word and to understand it so that we could walk out of here not just simply knowing more, but indeed loving you more. And We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we're back to our study of the catechism. And at the start of the new year, um, we've done this now for one semester. It's always good to take a moment to take a step back and ask the question, why are we studying the catechism? The catechism, as you know, is simply a teaching tool. The shorter catechism that we're using was <laughs> initially intended for children, as you know. But a catechism, whether it's the shorter catechism for kids, larger catechism for adults, is a very simple tool. It asks you a question and then gives you an answer. And the idea is that you memorize the answer. And when you memorize those answers, you actually will get a pretty broad and comprehensive understanding of basic theology. Now, the question that I want to just address before we jump into today's lesson is, why even bother? We live in a very pragmatic culture, a managerial and therapeutic culture, and people want to, uh, the kind of stuff that you want to hear is, well, why don't we do something practical? Teach me, you know, how to, and then you fill in the blank with whatever is in vogue at the moment. Uh, yeah, how to raise kids. Well, of course, we do do some of that here. Some of you will remember, um, I guess it was 2021, we did Shepherding a Child's Heart, right? A, a study class on that wonderful book uh, by Ted Tripp. And you might say, well, yeah, but that was two years ago. Well, the book is still there, right? The, all that stuff is still available. So it's, you know, and we're, we can point you in those directions. But why do we spend most of our time in Sunday school dealing with studying books of the Bible or doing classes that overview theology, whether it be a broad survey like this or something specific like when we did uh, the theology of worship or so on. We also do some church history because it's also good for you to know why we do the things we do, where the church came from, et cetera, et cetera. But the question of theology comes up so many times that it's just maybe worth a moment discussing why we do that. And let me ask you this. When you have kids, what do you need to do for them when they're first born, right? So we're looking at little Camille who just celebrated one year old, and there she is. Um, yay! And so, I, you know, I'm presuming Russ and, and, and me, if she were here, um, could probably answer the question. I'm presuming that she still probably doesn't drive herself. She doesn't cook. Uh, she probably has not dressed herself yet. We do all those things for them. Why? Because they can't. Okay, it, was, it wasn't a trick question. It was really straightforward. <laughs> because they can't do it. My boys are now 21 and 19. I don't have to tell them, you know, purple sweaters don't go with red pants. I don't have to dress them, right? We don't have, in fact, they now do things. Why don't we still cook for them and feed them, you know, give them, open your mouth. Why do we not, you know, dress them and, and, and do all that? Because they can. But how do they get from there to there? We train them. We equipped them. We showed them so they could do those things themselves. This is exactly the case. Um, we've gotten to the point in American Christianity where nobody wants to think anymore. And, and you guys know that. That's, I mean, that's just typical. So what we do here is we train you so that you learn 
how to use the Bible so that you learn where the different things are so that you can look things up. By the way, so you can check our work. You should always be suspicious of anybody who tells you, trust me, believe me, I have an inside view that you can't understand, but I'm, you know, and then you fill in the blank. I'm a prophet, I'm a whatever, and so on. You need to be able to check our work. And so what we want you to be able to do is to uh, be theologically astute because guess what? That will enable you to know how to deal with your children, how to deal with your coworkers, what to make of stuff that you see on the news, in politics, or in the culture at large, and so on. Does that make sense? So theology is, in one sense, eminently practical. Just like when you teach your child how to dress and how to feed himself and how to ultimately, you know, provide and do all those things so they are self-sustaining, that's the thing that we teach here. So anyway, before I get started, any questions or comments on that before we jump into today's lesson? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and go through the catechism. Now, I know that most of you probably carry a, you know, a a pocket catechism with you all the time. somebody's la- I don't get- anyway but if you don't there's a trinity hymnal <laughs> right in front of you and it has a shorter catechism that we're using the red hymnal uh, it's around page 870 we're going to be looking at question 18 so I invite you to turn there question 18 and uh, you remember the catechism has been walking I know it's been three weeks because we took two weeks off so we, we've been walking through looking at what happened at the fall and we've, this, we've uh, defined what sin is. We've talked about how uh, we've got to the position that we're at. The catechism uses, you know, language from the 1640s. So when it talks about an estate, it's not talking about a parcel of land. It's just the word for condition. And we're going to be using that word again today. So uh, if you'll take a look there in, in question 18, we're going to do as we normally do. I'll ask somebody to read the question and the answer. Uh, we also... <clears throat> have some scripture passages we're going to look at, and the same thing as before, I'll ask you to uh, uh, just look up a passage, and whoever gets to it first, just go ahead and read it, so that we're not all sitting around waiting. But yeah, let's go ahead with question 18. Can I have somebody read question and answer, please? All right, thank you, Jonathan. Okay, so this is a pretty dense answer, uh, a little denser than most of the ones that we're going to get, so we're going to try to do our best here to unpack it in little pieces. Let's make sure that we understand what the question, question actually is. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate, that condition into which man fell? That's essentially what it's asking. So we've already looked at the fact that Adam and Eve uh, put in the garden, and because of their sin, mankind, all of it, and I'll talk about that in just a moment again, fell into this condition of sin. That's already been established in the previous questions. You know, you can uh, go back and read those. The question now is, well, what does that entail? What, what has happened because of the fall? Well, how does that affect us? And so on. Now, take a look at the answer, and we're going to break it up into three parts. It says the sinfulness of that state, or in other words, the sinfulness of that condition into which man fell consists, and then it gives us these three things. The first is, The guilt of Adam's first sin, so that's one thing, and we've already discussed that, so maybe I'll just go back and review it in a moment, but let's go through these. Consists in the the guilt of Adam's first sin, so there's that guilt. 
the want, and the want is just the old language for the lack, the lack of original righteousness. Okay, that's the second. And finally, the corruption of his whole nature. Now, this next line, which is commonly called original sin, does not refer to just the previous phrase, the corruption of his whole nature. All three of these things, all three of these things, is what is commonly called original sin. And you don't just say capitalized and all that. So you want to be sure when you hear people talking about original sin that you don't confuse it. We might say the original sin. Well, Adam disobeyed and ate of the fruit in the tree of, of the tree in the middle of the garden. But that's not what the word original sin means. So just drop the article, the the part. Um, and so you can talk about that original sin or the original sin, all lowercase, and it just refers to that historical act. But when we talk about original sin, it's using the word original in the way that it, uh, that it initially me- meant. The origin, right? Now, when we think of the original sin, we think of the first sin. That's how we use the word original now, right? Or the earlier, right? So I know the kids have a, an expression now, you know, they say, because I hear them saying it all the time, John's an OG pastor. Isn't that, was that not right? Is that? Oh, yeah, yeah okay. Some of you get it, some of you, you know, but that's okay. So when they talk about the original gangsta, you know, whatever, they mean earlier, earlier, you know, old school, that kind of thing. Here, the word original is being used, the origin from which something comes out of. So in other words, what is it then that, you know, our, that our condition of sinfulness flows out of. And it's these three things. The first one is that guilt of Adam, which was given to us. And we've already talked about that before. Let me just review it briefly. That guilt is different than the actual sinful nature, right? Remember, Jesus, perfect in his nature, sinless, had the guilt of our sin imputed to him. That is, imputed is that technical word that just means reckoned, right? That it's the record of that sin is given to Jesus, right? And likewise, in our salvation, the record of his perfect obedience, that he lived the perfect life that none of us can live, right? He thought, said, and did everything perfectly. That perfect record is imputed to us, to reckoned to us. That record is given to us. We read in Colossians chapter 2 that the, it literally says the record of our debt is nailed to the cross. Not, it it's literally says that, but it doesn't mean that literally, you know, obviously that happened. But in Jesus hanging on the cross, that's what happened. So Adam's guilt is reckoned, is imputed to every one of his descendants. And we've already looked at, in fact, this is from last time. How is our, you know, sinful nature, the actual nature now, not just the guilt, how is the sinful nature transmitted to us? And we looked at these two concepts of creationism and traditionism. Remember, one claims that, uh, that our parents simply make our physical bodies and then God implants a new soul at every conception. You know, just boom, 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 that kind of thing. So that's one view, creationism. The other one, traditionism, which is from the Latin word to pass through, uh, says that literally sin nature also gets transmitted from the parents. We won't go back into all that. We've already discussed it, which one is correct or not. It's not like it's 100% clear in Scripture. Uh, we lean towards a tradition view, but um, there are people that hold to the other, and that's okay. Um, the point being, the guilt itself, though, is imputed. 
passed on to every one of them. Why? And we've already talked about that because Adam is our representative. And again, we've, again, I'm not going to go ahead and we did at least two lessons on that. Adam has been placed as our representative, the perfect representative, so that we all complain, you know, and say, well, Lord, if I would have been there, I, I would have done differently. No, you wouldn't have because just like when you pick a congressional representative, they're supposed to represent you and do what you would have done in Congress, except they don't because we live in an imperfect world and so on. But God picked the perfect representative because he always picks perfectly and does everything perfectly. So Adam perfectly represented what you and I would have done. So um, that's how God has chosen to put the whole human race on trial. But that's important because it means that this estate of sinfulness that we're born into, when you're born into, into this human race, you immediately receive that guilt because Adam represented you. The second thing is you lack that original righteousness. You're no longer holy. You're no longer able uh, to, to do the things that are right and so on. But we've discussed that also at length. So the one I really want to focus on, the third one, is that corruption of his whole nature. That's the one we've got to talk about. Because that's where we get into a lot of pushback. The idea of the corruption of his whole nature. Now, all three of those, again, is what we refer to as original sin. And notice what it then ends by saying, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. That's an important point. The sinfulness of the condition in which we find ourselves starts with original sin, right? The guilt, the lack of original righteousness, the very corruption of our nature, plus all the actual sins that we then do, the ones that you yourself have done that, you know, are marked in the book, as it were, right? So just so you understand, that's what he's looking at. But let's go back now and take a look at the corruption of his whole nature and begin to unpack that because that, as I said, that's where we get a lot of pushback. And there's a term that we use. It's not a biblical term. In other words, it's like the, the term Trinity that you don't actually find in the Bible. It's just a term that we tend to use to describe the corruption of our whole nature. Anybody know what that is? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Say again? Certainly we are fallen, and because we're fallen, our nature is corrupted, and we describe that corruption with a term, just think of flowers. Total depravity. Somebody's saying, what, flowers? That's so confusing. Okay, some of you have heard of, of this. I'll just, without comment. In 1618, well, before that, in the 16, early 1600s, there was a guy who challenged uh, the view that God is sovereign, that, uh, that we lack the ability to do what's good until we're enabled to, and all that, which we're going to all talk about here. His name was Jacob Arminus. Uh, his followers were known as Arminians. And in 16, um, and, and then they, they produced a, a document that they gave to the church sometime in this, about 1610, basically saying these are the five points that we dispute. And the church in 1618, 1619 met in a synod, you know, council. Uh, it was in uh, the uh, Dutch uh, city of Nord Dortrecht, or Dort, and they uh, became known as the Synod of Dort, and they responded to those five points with their own five points. You say this, we say this. You say this, we say this, you say this. And those five points have come to be known as the five points of Calvin, although Calvin had been long dead, like 70 years dead when this was done. But uh, yes, there's total depravity. I'm not going to write it out, but anybody know the rest? 
Uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We're going to talk about all those, but uh, and not today, uh, <laughs> through the catechism. And, um, and, and you get this in English anyway. It only works in English. doesn't work in Spanish, the language you'll be speaking in heaven. Um, so, but yeah, you get tulip, and so that's why I said flowers. But total depravity, let's talk about that because this is where you get a lot of pushback, not just from the culture as a whole, but even within Christendom. A lot of people don't, and, you know, push back. And the reason is they have no theological basis for pushing back. It's just that the whole concept really makes us feel bad. Nobody likes to be told that you're worse than you think you are. But what does total, corrupt, uh, total depravity mean, really mean? Let's take a look at a scripture passage. In fact, let me just look at, I'm going to just read to you two, two passages. Look at the catechism question again. I'm just going to read these to you. We just read in the catechism, the sinfulness of that state wherein to man, uh, man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. So hold on to that. And remember, we looked at Romans 5.19. I'm just going to give you passages that defend this. There's many of them, but I'm just going to give you one. The guilt of Adam's first sin, question one, uh, 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 biblical proof one from Romans 5.19 by, one's, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right, so that's, you know, Romans 5, the second half is all about putting the two representatives, Adam and then Jesus, the second Adam, and comparing and contrasting. About the, the second point, the want or the lack of original righteousness. There we can go to Romans 3.10. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Oh, okay. Now, now when you read something like that, and you... It's pretty unambiv- uh, unambivalent. It's pretty clear, right? doesn't say there's hardly anyone that's righteous. No, it's none righteous. No, not one. We're going to get the same thing here with total depravity. I'm going to use just one passage. Let's look up Genesis 6-5 in your Bibles. Genesis 6-5. And would somebody please read that aloud? All right. Look at that, that answer. And God saw that the wickedness of man was what? great throughout all the earth and that every imagination or intention depends on your translation of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually when you look at that question you begin to see several things about total depravity first you have to note that it's inward that's the first thing i want you to pick up on that depravity is inward it's deep in our nature it's not surface it's not external now, you know, you go around and you ask people, uh, are most people good? And what would most people say? Yeah, most people are good. That's the, the stereotypical answer. Some people are bad. We just read about this Idaho killer. He is bad, right? Uh, depending on what side of the aisle you are politically, you might look at the uh, current um, uh, resident of uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and you might say he's really good or he's really bad. Just the depend. So there are some people that fall into those categories of bad, right? So either the ex-president is bad and Joe Biden is good or Joe Biden is bad and the ex-president is good or whatever. So we all have those categories by which we define certain things, right? The general um, consensus is that people are good. But we want to look at what God has to say, the one who made us, the one who sees everything, and actually uh, wrestle with that. And from Genesis 6-5, it tells us that this depravity, this wickedness is deep down within our very nature. Even if we don't see it, 
God recognizes it. And this is probably the perfect time right here to talk about man's uh, almost infinite uh, capacity for self-delusion. Right? And you're all familiar with that passage in Ezekiel? The heart is desperately wicked. Right? And it literally says that we, can, that we lie to ourselves about our ability to see our own sin and our own nature. And that's what we see right here. So Genesis 6-5, the first thing it shows us is that it is, uh, uh, desperate, it is inward, that desperate nature of depravity. The second thing that you see here is that that wickedness is great. Again, most people won't say that. But again, it's very clear in the passage. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Okay? So there it is. The third thing that we want to notice about this, this depravity, this wickedness, is that it is continual. It was not only sometimes. It was not something that came and went. But it says at all times, every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Right? And the fourth thing you want to see is that it's universal. It doesn't say some men, most men, a few men, all. So we begin to then get a very strong feel for what our depravity, the extent, we should say, of that depravity. It's an inward depravity. It's in our very nature. It's not just something that occur- occasionally happens when I'm in this place or around this setting or, you know, or whatever. We also know that it is great. Great as in large, as in quantitative, not great as in wonderful. Right? It is continual. And it is universal. And like I said, this is usually like the, oh man, why are we studying this? You're supposed to come to church and I'm supposed to tell you, you're really good, God loves you, you know, you're a wonderful person. And, you know, here's how you can be even better. The good news of the gospel makes no sense until we deal with the bad news. And here's the bad news. This is all of us, right? So, very, very clear that sin is something that has, if you want to use just the kind of language like a disease, has infected every aspect of who we are. It's worked itself down into every part of uh, of that which defines us. Now, let me take a moment here and take a step back and take a look at one of the misconceptions. Because when people hear this, they automatically then jump to thinking something that we do do not intend and are not saying. And that's a confusion between total depravity and utter depravity. These are two different things. They have to do with the extent of that corruption. So what total depravity is showing us is that every part of who we are, right? We are body and soul. We have a mind. We have uh, a will. We have emotions. Every last part of who we are has been corrupted by our fallen nature. Now, the body part is pretty uh, evident. We're all growing older. We all get diseased and so on, whether it's little sniffles or something, stubbing your toe all the way to cancer and serious diseases and ultimately death, our bodies very clearly show the effect of living in a fallen world. The inside, we can hide a little more. We can pretend is not there. Now, sometimes, again, when we see mass murders like the Idaho killer, then we say, oh, that's evil. But you only need to look at the way we treat one another 
right? We see husbands and wives divorcing one another. We see children being abused. We see uh, people flipping each other off on the road, you know, just because somebody did whatever, that kind of stuff. We know that there's something broken on the inside. The question is to what extent? And most people tend to view their sin, they tend to view themselves baseline as good people with these occasional dips. The question is, do I sin because I'm a sinner or am I a sinner because I sin? What is my nature? And total depravity, these passages that we're looking at, make very, very clear. The only reason that we do the actual transgressions of sin is because our baseline is sinful. And it's sinful in these ways. A wickedness which is radically in our nature, great, continual, and universal. But that does not mean that we are as wicked as we could possibly be, which is what utter depravity is. When you look at the demons, for example, that is the angels who are fallen, Satan, let's take Satan as an example. Satan also rebelled against God. His depravity is utter. He is as evil as he could be, but that's not been the case with mankind. Let's see if we can think of how we can put that. Some of you have heard me use this example before in newcomer's class. So it's like taking a glass of water, right? You have a perfect glass of water, you know, not, nowadays you've got to define it. It couldn't have come from the tap and it couldn't have come from whatever. Somehow you found some, you know, crystal clear mountain spring somewhere and there's this perfect glass of water. All right. You can drink that water. You'll be perfectly fine. It's just wonderful. What happens if I take a little vial, just a, it's an eight-ounce glass, right? Or nowadays, everything's gotten supersized. 64-ounce glass. You guys remember when 16 ounces came out in the 90s, and that was a big thing? And then it became, and now we're 32 and 60. Okay. So you got a big old glass of water. I take a, just a little vial of poison, a poison that will kill you instantly, right? Take the dropper, fill the dropper up, squeeze it into the water, and stir it. Is the whole water poison? Is the whole glass? But it's, it's still water, right? So it's, it's not all poison, right? It's still 99.9% water. But has the whole glass of water been tainted? Yes, that's total depravity. Total depravity means that every aspect of who you are, your body, your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions have all been tainted by sin. You are not as sinful as you could be, but you cannot escape it. You're not good with occasional lapses. Every last part of us is sinful and affected by sin. Now, utter depravity is taking that whole vial of poison where every drop is just pure poison. It is as poisonous as it could be, right? That's utter depravity. And the thing that we see in Scripture <clears throat> is that on this side of glory, God maintains, and we'll talk about that for why for here in just a moment, uh, God maintains a level of allowing us to not be as bad as we could be. But once we die, if we're not believers, if we're not un- uh, un- uh, united to Christ, and we go to hell, then we become utterly depraved. We become as bad as we could be. Does that make sense? But on this side, when we're talking about total depravity, we do not mean this. We simply mean every last part has been tainted 
by sin. Just like that poison, you will no longer drink the water because it is as deadly uh, as anything else. It's still mostly water, but all of that water has been corrupted. Does that make sense? So for those of you who like the technical terms, it's a question of, of extent and degree. To what extent has the water been corrupted? To what degree has the water been corrupted? Uh, it has been corrupted uh, extensively all throughout to a degree deadly enough, but not to the maximum degree. Does that make sense? So that's what we're looking at. So the question then is, why then are we not as evil as we could be? And the answer is very simple, the mercy of God. Why would he do that? Uh, imagine if everybody was as wicked as we could be. What do you think would happen? <laughs> That's right. Um, but I mean, if he left us to our own devices, we would probably, life would not even be able to continue. We would probably just literally kill each other because you simply would want to take everything that you see, it's for yourself, you uh, wouldn't like anyone. Uh, you literally would just murder, kill, you know, kill, maim, destroy. It's what we used to say in high school uh, band when, uh, you know, we were cheering on the team. Yeah, I, I grew up in Miami. I mean, come on. <laughs> Did high school in Miami, you know, where our football team fought with switchblades. Oh, yeah, I got the ball. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Early 80s. Um, anyhow, uh, some of you might know what that world was like. But anyway, the point simply being is God actually slows down the workings of sin. Um, and he does so out of mercy. So if you think about it, when, when we get this answer from Second Peter, right? Uh, when the question comes, why did not, you know, why, why is it, uh, Jesus taking so long to return? Uh, the answer is quite simple. Second Peter um, Chapter two, some of you, uh, chapter three, some of you can look it up. I don't remember exactly where, somewhere around 10, verse 10. It tells us to basically give time for people to repent. Now you might say, wow, that's 2,000 years. Who's, who's living that long? Obviously, for more people like us, you would not be a believer if Jesus, in his sacrificial life and death, then you know, immediately brought in the kingdom, and that was the end of history, right? We wouldn't be here. We would not be included. God has this plan X amount of people uh, that only he knows. And once all those people come to himself, then he will, he will return and, and, uh, and that'll be that. In order for that to work, uh, Shakespeare said all, all, all the world is a stage, right? So essentially, God is maintaining that stage and he can't do that if we're all killing each other off. So some theologians at different times have said, you know, and by the way, we call that common grace, I should have mentioned that. Uh, when we talk about um, special grace, the salvific grace, the grace that God shows that saves us, common grace is that grace that he gives that we read about in the Psalms that he allows his son to, you know, to shine on the good and the evil, it tells us, uh, the righteous and the wicked, the rain to come and the crops to grow. And that's why you know, your neighbors uh, who are unbelievers get to eat food and, and they live in neighborhoods where they don't get massacred all the time and, and we still get shocked when terrible things happen because God in his common grace has maintained the stage on which the plan of redemption can play out. Does that make sense? Without that, the plan of redemption would have just ended immediately because there was no, <laughs> no people to save. We'd all kill each other. So it's just an act of grace that he maintains enough order for things to happen. Now, how does he do that? That's what I, oh yeah, we only got 10 minutes. 
That's what I want to spend the time talking about here. How does God maintain that level of common grace? Well, the first thing he does is he's given us a conscience, right? I'm gonna give you some passages. I'm gonna ask you guys to look them up. Uh, whoever gets to them, just go ahead and read it. So let's look at this idea of a conscience which restrains the workings of evil to some extent in our, in our lives. Uh, let's look up Romans 2.15. Romans 2.15. Somebody else might wanna be looking up Romans 13. Uh, you got Romans 2.15, Brandon? Please go ahead. Okay, that's uh, in Romans 2, Paul is talking about uh, those who are outside of God's chosen people, the Israelites, who is basically talking about us, all those who are pagans, and saying uh, that we still have a law that's written on our hearts, that conscience, and, it, it, and alter, I think he says it alternates between accusing us or excusing us. That's a good thing, that's a bad thing, and so on. So the Lord uses conscience to restrain. The second thing that he uses to keep the world from being as evil as it could be is the civil government. And, uh, uh, you know, the powers of the civil government, uh, rulers acting in a way that checks evil, right? So uh, Romans 13, would somebody read the first five verses? Romans 13, one through five. Let every person... All right, thank you. So there's laying out at least what government should be. Uh, sometimes wicked men take, uh, take office uh, and uh, don't do what they're supposed to do. But that's the idea is that government restrains evil, Right. Uh, how many of you, okay, you don't have to answer this, but how many of you follow the speed limit perfectly all the time? Just, just answer it to yourself. And then say, when you do, which I know for everybody, I mean, we're talking about people out there, not in here, right? When, when, when you do follow it, why do you do it? Because you look and say, wow, 55 is just, a, it's a magical number, double nickel. I mean, I just... Or do you, or is it, oh, I heard there's a cop coming in, right? There's the civil authority restraining you from breaking the law, right? Adam's going to chime in. Actually, I, I would disagree. Paul says that it is because the legitimate civil authority has said that it is. And see, I, I think, yeah, this is not the time to get too deep into this. Uh, we've done a class on, on uh, basically studying the law. You know, there's three uses of the law, right? Three uses of the moral law. Uh, and one of those is the civil use and so on. Um, when Paul, later in this passage, if we had kept reading through verse seven and so on, and he talks about things like taxes and so on, uh, we, we can talk about things like uh, border laws, right? You know, uh, is, hey, no human's illegal. Uh, okay, look, we get what you're, what you're trying to say. Uh, crossing a border in and of itself You know, I'm not hurting anybody, right? I'm just crossing that line. But because of the necessity of maintaining order, which the civil magistrate is charged with maintaining certain level of order, you have to come up with certain things, you know, of restraint. And so it says, this is our border, or this is the speed limit, and so on. So it's very much, very much like the original, uh, the, notice I used the definition, the original sin, not original sin. What was wrong with eating fruit? In fact, God tells him, you can eat every other fruit. It was the fact that he had said, don't eat this fruit, and it was the rebellion of that heart that said, yeah, it looks good, I'm gonna go do it, right? So I would actually argue, yes, going 60 is not inherently evil any more than going 40 or going 2 million or going zero or going whatever. But when the civil magistrate, for good reason, is not abusing his powers well within you know, limits of what he's been charged with, sets that and we go beyond it, then 
it tells us whoever, I mean, you just gotta read what the text said and the part that Matt did read. Whoever then resists the civil authority is in fact resisting God who has placed that civil authority in place. Again, anytime we're dealing with total depravity, nobody likes, I'm not very popular right now because I'm having to tell you this stuff. And it's absolutely true. So I would disagree with that point, Adam. I I can push back on you because I know that uh, you can take it, but I know you want to follow up and then uh, Chelsea's going to chime in, but yes. So when you see the civil magistrate doing something, using its lawful power and authority to advance something for wrong reasons, like, I don't know, lockdowns for control of people. Not not that we, I'm just throwing a hypothetical out there. And, you know, all with the idea of getting you to do certain, or we see it now, you know, I homeschooled my kids, and you might say, well, that doesn't give you a right then to, dis, to, uh, to talk about this, but I grew up in the public schools, and the one thing I've noticed over the years, and especially see here in Flower Mound, you know, Flower Mound's great, wonderful place to raise kids and all that, but the state owns your kids in this place. I mean, here the school dictates everything. If the school says we're going to meet for soccer practice at, at, on Sunday, You'll not come to church. I mean, not you. Again, I know you guys are smarter than all this and better, but out there, people out there. Um, <laughs> but you get the idea. The schools dictate everything. And um, what we've seen more and more and more is that abuse of that power. You know, you, you've heard, we're talking to schools. I wasn't planning on doing this, but you've been watching over the last few years things that have been happening in places like Loudoun County, Virginia, but they're happening here in Texas. I mean, if you read about it, different school districts and the stuff that they're putting in the schools and all that. And then you get up there as a parent and you say, but I don't want a book that describes, uh, tells my boy how to have homosexual sex with his classmate. I don't want that in the library. And then you're told, yeah, you have no say. At that point, they've crossed the line because we talk about spheres of authority. There's the family, there's the civil, there's the ecclesiastical. Those are the three spheres. Actually, the fourth one, your own self-government. At that point, yes, you can then resist. And in a class on that that we've discussed, and I'm happy maybe to discuss this some other time in more detail, yes, the civil magistrate can, and in fact, must be resisted. Um, so, so yeah. Did you want, uh, let me see, no. do you want to follow up, Adam? No, that's okay. okay, Susan, you were going to say? Oh, to jab or not to jab? Yes. Thank you. I barely remember what I did last week, uh, let alone... <laughs> But yes, that probably would answer a lot of, that would be a place to go. So let me, let me just briefly get back through uh, to this because we're almost just about out of time. Um, so yeah, the way that God restrains then our evil is one, through our conscience, two, through the power of the civil government. Uh, somebody look up Hebrews 2.15. The third one is through the fear of death. The fear of death. And if you've got it, that means you're supposed to read it. Okay, so there, I mean, it's just explicit. You don't even have to read into it. I've seen, uh, as a pastor, um, over the years, people who are not believers restrain themselves because they're afraid of judgment. <laughs> they're afraid of death. They're afraid of the... So God uses all these things. And then the fourth one, I'm just kind of going to go through these quickly now, uh, is the influence of our families, the influence of our education, the general influences of society, not necessarily the civil magistrate, but just society tends to uh, also recognize certain things. Now, I want to just take a moment and talk about, um, let's see how much time we've got here, not enough time. From a human point of view, you know, when you look at total depravity, it, it's, it's pretty total. 
pretty comprehensive in saying that, you know, uh, our sinfulness really is at every level. Like we said, it's, it's, it's continual, it's, it's, it's universal, it's great, it's deep in our very nature. But we talk about people being good in general. And when we see this restraining action, we're, understanding is that from a human point of view, it is very clear that we don't always do outwardly wicked things. You know, we're not waking up every morning and thinking, let me just kill off my whole family and my neighbors and see how far I can get before I finally get stopped by somebody else. You know, we're not that. What is very clear in Scripture, though, is what man is unable to do is to ever really do anything that God considers good. And I think we need to look at it from that perspective. Because when we use theological language and we say people are not good, and no one is good, not even one. The data is very clear in Scripture, and we could have read much more. That little Romans 3.10 passage is part of... uh, a 14-point a condemnation of the human race that Paul gives there in Romans. And he has a different passage that he quotes in every single one. I think it's, there's plenty of biblical evidence for it. But we need to understand when we talk about, I've got a good neighbor, or he's a good person. You know, what are we saying? Yeah, that person's probably not going to stab you in the back, you know, the first chance they get, or whatever. But we all know that even our, very, I mean, if you're married, uh, even in the best of marriages, you know that the person who, loves you the most can still wound you and hurt you and that happens and then things can actually get much worse than all of that so we have to understand the language that we tend to use from the biblical perspective the way God looks at good no one is holy no one is righteous the only way that happens is if you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit regeneration being born again right John chapter 3 verse 3 Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. In fact, then John 3, 5 says you cannot even see the kingdom of God without being born again. So you're not even aware that it's really there. You can't even see the real kingdom and so on. So um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to go ahead and read some of these passages. Man, mankind just simply can't do any of these things on their, on their own. Genesis eight twenty one says the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Again, it's, uh, it's just this, this um, thing that we read in Genesis 6.5 where that inward desire and that intent of the heart is only evil continually. We have to weigh with that. Uh, we already looked at Romans 3.10. There is also Romans 3.12. There is no one that does good. Oh, no, that is what we already read. There is no one that does good. No, not one. So the point is that no one who is unregenerate can do anything that pleases God. That's how we define that. When you want to make that distinction between what does it mean when we talk about theologically no one is good, but then we can sit there and say, well, you know, in a human perspective, this person's not a mass murderer. And it simply means that unregenerate people are unable to do anything that pleases God, right? First Samuel sixteen seven says, the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we have very different perspectives in that regard. Um, so on. So the person who might look good to, to those on the outside, by God's estimate, doesn't, doesn't uh, qualify, right? Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 is condemning the Pharisees, the people who were considered the best behaved people of the time. Woe to you, said Jesus, for you make clean the outside, but within you are full of extortion and excess. 
Outwardly you appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity, as Matthew 23, 25, and so on. So we can go on and on and on. We've already discussed the difference between ability and freedom. Do you remember we talked about those two? So I'm not going to get into all that here. Man is free to do good. Man is free to do evil. But in our fallen state, we only have the ability to do evil. So in other words, even when we do these things that are seemingly good on the outside, they're not done from the right motives of the heart. They're not done with the desire to glorify God. We only regain that ability, which was lost at the fall. We only regain that ability when we are regenerated, when we are born again, when we become united to Christ because we believed in him and trusted in him. So what that does then is it finally permits us to, again, obey and truly do good things, but it's all because of God's grace. So, um, skip all that, skip all that, skip all that. The point I'm I'm getting at is until that happens, we actually lack the ability to do anything good. Uh, Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then uh, you may also do what is good um, that are... uh, then may you also do good, you who are accustomed to do evil. Uh, Jeremiah is basically saying uh, you, you can't change your nature, so there's no likelihood that you're going to start doing any good, uh, who, you who continually do evil. You can't change your nature, but God can. And see, that's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. I want to just get to that and before we move on. The gospel is what changes your nature so that you then do begin to act differently. So we've discussed that before, so I'm going to leave it there. Um, I just want to end by then basically saying that um, in the end, you always act according to what you want. You're free. Uh, you do all these evil things because you, you want to. You prefer it. Uh, in our unregenerate state, it's what we want to do. Uh, God doesn't force us or compel us or so on. In our regenerated, once, we, once we're... Uh, united to Christ, then our, our wants and our inclinations, our desires change. We want to do what's good. We also still sometimes want to do what's bad, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. But, uh, anyway, so we've talked about that before, so I'm going to leave it there. The point is that total depravity is real. It's uh, not a fun thing to talk about, but the good news of the gospel really is not enticing to people until they see how bad things are. Um, over the years, especially, uh, well, even civilian ministry, when I started as a chaplain and did work there, uh, some people do a lot of bad things um, and just don't really see how bad they are until the situation becomes desperate. You know, I remember visiting some guys in jail, and then they're, oh, Pastor John, and now they're blubbering and so on, right? I mean, literally crying and all that, because it finally took something like that to get their attention, to the state of where they really were and what they needed, right? And that's, basically, we talk about that being broken. You know, you get to a point where finally that happens. That's what has to happen to all of us. There are so many people out there uh, who wrestle with, you know, their behavior and so on, but in the end, they don't need Jesus, at least not the Jesus of the Bible. They, they, they want the Jesus of society, the jello Jesus, you know, who's got no spine and He's just nice, and he goes around driving a VW hippie van and, you know, throwing out flowers, and he plays a guitar and all that other stuff. And this Jesus is just a lot of fun, and he's just there to affirm you and to tell you that he loves you, and his, his middle name is Buddha and all this other stuff. So um, you get the idea. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. That Jesus who comes forward, who is God himself, 
wants you to see how bad things are. And only at that moment do we realize that we need him. But there are so many people that don't. And, um, uh, so, you know, Brent, uh, Adam, who just walked out, mentioned something about men's grill night. Men, you know, we've been praying for the father of one of our guys here at the church uh, who has literally come out and said, you know, I'm not that bad. There's just no need for Christ when they don't see themselves, right? Uh, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can understand it, Ezekiel says. So that's where we're at. Okay, we got to quit here. Oh, yeah, 10 minutes past. Um, but that's where we're at, and that's why we spend this time, and that's why this question deals with this. We have to deal with the reality of it. Uh, and by the way, if you look carefully at the Bible, and with this I'll just end. Um, oh, there was one more passage. Pro- Proverbs one twenty four. I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded it. This is, this is the human condition. What I was just going to say is if you look all throughout the Scripture, this is the one thing it teaches all throughout. It's one of the reasons I think the Bible is not popular amongst people is because every page is condemnatory and nobody likes being put under a microscope and being shown this is who you really are. Um, we don't stop there. The good news follows after that. But we have to wrestle with what it is. So any last-minute questions or comments? Yeah, and I think that, yeah, um, they're both correct. I think if you use one, you're missing the other. They're, each one entails the other. Total depravity, we already talked about limits your ability. I just, that's what I was talking about now. If I call it total inability, somebody will say, why? Because you're totally depraved. So, you know, the, the thing with teaching tools is, as you know, as a teacher, they always, they're, they're shorthand for something deeper and more. So, yeah, RC is correct. Total inability because... We've been so affected all throughout that, yeah, we lack the ability to do good, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and you were what in your trespasses and sins? Dead. Not sick, not ill, not limp, not crippled. You were dead. Uh, Spiritually dead people cannot do anything about their spiritual condition. They have to be born again, raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, and so on. So, yeah, good point. Anything else? Nope. Okay, good. Let's um, uh, close in prayer. We'll wrap things up. Next week, we'll continue. Good class. Welcome back to 2023 Sunday School Edition. I mean, uh, 2023 edition of Sunday School. I'm getting everything confused here. And let's pray and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are brutally honest with us. You show us what we really are, and you do it because you love us. You know that we need to wrestle with our uh, true condition. Nobody likes to look inward and see the blackness of our own hearts. Uh, We want to fool ourselves. In fact, we do a very good job of fooling ourselves into thinking that we're much, much better. We can see it in the way that we treat other people and the way we're so quick to judge them and to wonder why they don't get their act together even while we continue doing the things that we do. We caricature them. We reduce them to one, to a single dimension. But for us, well, we're, we're complicated. We're complex, and we explain away our sin. And that's all because of these things that we've been studying. So, Father, we pray that as we've learned more about total depravity, that it actually would help us to understand ourselves and why we behave the way we do and how we try to excuse our sin and, uh, and, and so on. But help us then see, again, our great need of Jesus and our great need of his cleansing and our great need of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and of the sanctifi- sanctifying work of the Spirit that makes us and conforms us increasingly to the image of your Son. May we be more grateful for what you have done, especially even now as we go into worship so that we can uh, celebrate and thank you for Christ and uh, and all the benefits of his redemption. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.